It's a good tuna, but I think I paid too much. I am the king of the ring. I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. Stick it up. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 111. It is I, Matthew PM Bigelow.com. And Matthew PM Bigelow.com is where you can go to get photos of the show, uh, pertinent links, ideas, and more for support. This is, of course, the podcast from Japan that focuses on AI markets from Japan, uh, rising in a conflict in the Indo Pacific from a Japanese perspective. Uh, news analysis, and of course, some of those odd items along the way. Uh, my name is Matthew Bigelow, uh, coming at you from the Tosihisha Cho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan, the armpit of Asia. Indeed, indeed. And uh, today we got a busy day. Of course, um, on most people's minds when they tune into some sort of news podcast right now, is probably the conflict in uh, Israel and Palestine and I was watching a lot of videos, as I'm sure you were, and I was trying to look at how, how I could connect it to Japan and don't really have so many ideas right now. They're pretty far apart. Jews aren't a big thing in Japan. I do live near a very uh, nice, um, what is that called, with the where the rabbis are? No, I was going to say a monastery, but I can't remember the word right now. The synagogue. As soon as I pushed the stop button, the word just popped into my head. There is a very nice synagogue where I, near where I live. And, of course, I wish no harm to fall on any of their beautiful heads at all. And I wish the... Uh, all sides of this weird conflict can get along in Japan. Uh, but all, all I'm saying is that when it comes to the um, strife that occurs between uh, Jewish uh, people in the Middle East and uh, certain aspects of Islam in the Middle East, doesn't really exist in Japan. The only types of uh, conflict that sometimes happen might be between some uh, there's Filipino factions, but they're not that big over here. We do have some Rohingya uh, Muslims that got 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 pretty angry with some uh, Myanmar types in Japan, and then of course in uh, Saitama, there's a growing and growing number of um, uh, Islam people in uh, Warabi, where it's called Warabi Stan <laughs> by the locals. But that's kind of where it goes. It's it's yeah it's. It's not exactly, we don't have like, I was watching, I'm from Canada and people like are walking around with Palestinian flags and draping them over highways after the attack. I'm like, well, that's kind of dark. Um, and then of course, it's like, I, I see some punditry saying we need to remove Gaza from the face of the earth. I'm like, well, that's kind of extreme, but I haven't really seen like a, a big backlash from Japan on any side. So there's that, uh, that's going to be my, my update from there. Yeah, we don't have uh, Gaza missiles raining down on the Iron Dome. But when we do the war segment later on in the podcast, we will tie this into potential sleeper cells of a different nature. There is that to consider for sure. But from right off the bat, we have to think about new products. And I managed to find one that has a, not just something goofy, like um, a wallet that has a fork in it, you know, like some sort of Japanese convenience thing that nobody really needs. This is actually pretty fantastic. It looks great, and uh, I would I would imagine there could be a market for it. 
because everything about it sounds great. The Mainichi brings us from Japan's National Daily since 1922. Project to make denim jeans from pruned rose branches launched in West Japan City from Hiroshima in Fukuyama. Now,、um, Japanese denim has seen a big rise over the years in popularity for its innovative approaches, its nice cuts, its high quality. And if you're a denim freak out there,、uh, odds are that you'll be interested in、um, Japanese denim at some point along the road.、Uh, even Uniqlo jeans now, I've been wearing them longer than I have Levi's, and I used to be a Levi's guy. So there's that too. A project to make jeans using branches from pruned roses grown in western, this western Japanese city has been launched as part of an attempt to upcycle waste into new products. Now, One thing I really don't like about this style of journalism is that roses grown in this Western Japanese city. Well, why not just say Fukuyama City? It's not like everybody reading understands that Fukuyama is a city in Hiroshima. Anyways, the bara denim, bara meaning the rose,、uh, meaning for rose in Japanese, bara is a rose,、uh, denim is denim project, a denim related business in Fukuyama, Hiroshima Prefecture, will cooperate on producing a prototype of jeans using branches left over from pruning local flower beds by the end of fiscal 2023. Seven companies in the city will be in charge of manufacturing the upcycled jeans, utilizing the know how of Tokyo based consulting firm. Renovation Inc., which has experience in producing jeans using sugarcane pumice.、Um, I'll be posting a picture of this.、Uh, the the sugarcane pumice jeans.、Uh, if you saw these jeans, you wouldn't think that they were made of sugarcane or pumice. You'd think they were made of jeans.、Uh, crushing the branches into small pieces is the way that this is made until they become a powder and processing the powder into paper, joining the paper together to make yarn and weaving the yarn to make denim fabric. Yarn derived from rose branches will apparently account for 20 to 30% of the weft threads and make up 10 to 15% or 200 to 300 grams. Of a single pair of jeans. But one metric ton of rose branches were secured during the municipal government's July renovation of Rose Park in the city. Further calls for help from local residents resulted in the collection of over 300 kilograms of branches from about 30 individuals and organizations. And it kind of it goes on from there. But they got、um, denim bags, all sorts of things. So, again, just as like this.、Uh, Very reasonable way to think about using existing waste that might have a very practical application for something that everybody wants and needs, like a pair of jeans. So, I thought that、uh, introducing denim jeans from pruned rose branches,、uh, bara denim, would、uh, be an interesting way to kick off the show and、uh, think about maybe there's something around your house that you could use. Hmm. What about all that, those coffee grounds? Why don't you?、Uh, Why don't you take your wife's clothes and push the used coffee grounds into the armpits and、uh, stain them and then show her your, your amazing efforts to do something nice for you at the end of the day? And make sure you mention the Japan What podcast if she asks you where you got this super lovely idea before she mows the lawn and lets you drink beer in a hammock for three weeks. Just、hmm, think about that. All right. We're going to jump right into. Should we? No, we're going to actually going to do some more fun stuff. 
This one comes to us, we'll just do a couple of, um, we'll do this fun thing first. This is a Shrine Colliding Festival. Provides a smashing time in Matsuyama. This comes to us from the Asahi Shimbum, Breaking News, Japan News, and Analysis. This is hilarious. I'm going to narrate this video of thousands of people like crashing into each other like a Braveheart fight scene, uh, but they're holding shrines with each other. It's hilarious. Okay, for some uh, background information. So let's go. This is, comes to us from Matsuyama. Uh, Mikoshi portable shrines were smashed into each other while enthusiastic crowds cheered as the Matsuyama Autumn Festival returned to a sense of normalcy in this hot spring resort area. On October 7th, the last day of the festival in the Iheme prefectural capital, drums echoed from early in the morning and Mikoshi portable shrines from neighborhood associations were paraded through the streets. Seven Mikoshi were brought in front of Dogo Onsen Station in the Iyo Railway just after, just past 5 a.m. after rituals were completed. Uh, the Mikoshi then were carried in front of crowds of spectators. Around 100 people, including the Mikoshi carriers, uh, carriers then performed Hachiyawase seven times, in which two Mikoshi facing each other were sent on a collision course. And I'll play the, uh, the video describing this uh, from now. Let's take a look. All right, that's the collision between two Mikoshis and crowds of cheering Japanese people as they climb onto each other's Mikoshis and cheer. Then they walk down the streets in the middle of the morning or night. Hundreds of people dressed in white garb and traditional clothing then meet each other in the middle of the street and narrate. Then they stand on these giant mikoshis carried by crowds of people, thundering drums behind them. And the crowd watches by the sides of the streets very close up. There are no safety protocols except for some officers standing around. But other than that, you have thousands upon thousands of people throwing around portable shrines with people on top of them, demon-clad and wearing oni-types or parading through the street. Then people cheer each other on top of the Mikoshis. They are gathering in lines in front of each other, screaming each other for encouragement. They want to win the battle. And then they charge each other in the middle of the street as onlookers cheer on their favorite Mikoshi side. Then they, they grapple with each other and throw each other around and climb onto each other's Mikoshis as the audience screams and everybody screams and everybody dressed in their in their team's uniform, cheers and cheers and cheers until somebody is taken away by a stretcher. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very strange Japanese festival. <laughs> it's what makes Japan so much fun, to be honest. There's so many things like that. Well, it's just hilarious to watch. I'll be posting the video and the link to the video up at uh, MatthewPMBigelow.com. All right, onward from that. Kind of a funny thing. Also, what's going on in Japan um, in terms of like the economy or just kind of domestic things, domestic household spending falls 2.5% in August on rising prices. That's been ongoing for the past 15 months or so. And um, good to see that those festivals are coming back because when everything's just kind of going up and up and up incrementally, as I'm sure most of the people around the world have been noticing, it's just not that fun to go in around and it's like, oh, this uh, yogurt I used to buy is like half the size and twice as expensive now. 
I guess I'll get it, but I just won't go out at night because yogurt's so expensive. Not, not really, but it affects your mentality that way. Like, I don't want to get ripped off again. Um, BlackRock targets Japan's climate tech and investment push, according to Larry Fink. Um, and this is a one thing that kind of happens when we see this massive uh, reconstruction going on and there's a facelift occurring in Tokyo where they, they're giving it a 100-year project right now and oh, tons and tons of major buildings are going up 30, 40, 50 stories and they're all glass and steel, not a lot of concrete anymore and um, it's attracting a lot of investment. Foreign investment is way up and uh, Japan wants to kind of position itself as like a Singapore or a Hong Kong as as Hong Kong kind of goes down, and or maybe as Taipei as well might fall to the CCP, uh, Japan might be in a position to kind of become another, to to reimagine itself as a more important Asian um, hub, uh, especially the fact that the, probably we're not going to become Chinese anytime soon, and that it's relatively stable in that regard. But at the same time, it, it does attract the global elites to come and dance around and parade around and, and look to sniff out where the money is at. The same thing has been going on with the uh, self-defense forces now that they're announcing a revamp of their military as well. So all of a sudden you get intelligence community people uh, publishing long essays about why it's important. Maybe their side should be considered in this uh, military revamp, you know, which of course just amounts to billions and billions of dollars. Um, once that much amount of money is on the line, you're going to have enough uh, funding for those types of activities. Um, leading into that is going to be this next uh, article coming to us from japantoday.com. This is kind of um, what I, it is very important actually. It's exactly what I'm talking about right now. Mori building to open new development project in Tokyo as part of push to revitalize city. Um, Mori building is a, uh, one of the major, it's like the, he's the main guy right now. He's dead, but I mean, the Mori, the M on the Mori is going on top of so many new buildings these days. I have a pretty good view of some of the, uh, there's a various skylines in Tokyo, and I'm kind of in the middle, central of Tokyo. Um, and the, a lot of the Shinjuku skyline has some modernness to it, but it also has a lot of 70s, 80s, 90s to it. On the other side of town by the Tokyo area or the Marunouchi area, um, or towards Tyrannomon now, um, a huge amount of uh, buildings are going up. Um, and these are all the glass buildings. And I can see them from my house. And over the past 10 years, I just see a new building go up. And on the very top, boom, a giant M is on the top. And so this company gets to have its stamp basically all across Tokyo's modern skylines. They were responsible for building Roppongi Hills, a bunch of other ones, and they kind of, I guess, proven to not only the Japanese government, but the Japanese people that this company is capable of delivering the goods. What I love about this company is that they don't take these weird modernistic building approaches. You're not walking through some postmodern um, sort of a screw you statement to people uh, walking around the city like you see in London or some European places where the building isn't supposed to look like a building or it's like a brutalist building or it's meant to be imposing or it kind of has a weird angle and a bunch of X's flying off the top or something like that. These buildings look great. You go in them, you feel great. But it's not all great, actually. Um, so let's just begin. This comes to us written by Yuri Kageyama, uh, uh, coming to us from the business section of japantoday.com. 
uh, raised a century ago by an earthquake and fire again and then again by bombing during World War II. Tokyo is constantly recreating itself. These days, multi-billion dollar redevelopment projects are replacing aging downtown neighborhoods of tiny two-story homes and apartments and in some cases cherished green spaces with massive mixed office retail and residential centers designed to help the city burnish its status as a desirable home for global business. Um, it kind of says there's the Maury JP Tower, a 64-story, 325-meter-tall skyscraper that will be Japan's tallest structure um, as part of its uh, 600-billion-yen uh, Azubudai Hills project, and more projects are in the works. The CEO um, of Mori Building, uh, Shingo Tsuji, um, said, uh, the, when the world is globalizing, everyone is doing business worldwide, not just locally. People choose the city they're going to make the Asian hub, be it Tokyo, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, or Singapore. If Tokyo gets chosen, people will gather here and it can keep growing, he told the Associated Press in a recent interview. Kind of a globalist statement, but it's also very true. Um, this is a lot of the times when you think about globalization a lot of the times it's cityization it's a stupid word that i just made up but when you think about like china being a global center of, of manufacturing or or of, of commerce you really think beijing shanghai shenzhen the cities are the places that kind of do it not not some not some village in the middle of inner mongolia for example so a lot of the times the city makes the globalization happen um, from 30 years ago, uh, Minori Mori foresaw competition heating up among cities rather than among nations. Um, Japan relies heavily on private companies like Mori Building, and it kind of goes on. But there's one quote that I wanted to um, mention here, and this is Mr. Dimmer. Uh, Charles Dimmer, an associate professor of urban studies at Waseda University in Tokyo, calls Mori's approach a template for redevelopment. Um, but he also has like a backside to it. And he said, the pluralistic, small-scale, democratic city in which many own land and had a stake is being replaced by a carefully manicured landscape of consumption owned and managed by a few powerful corporations. Um, uh, that's that's kind of the thing. Uh, I thought there was another one. Um, the environment in more developed projects like Roppongi Hills or Tranamon Hills is worlds apart from Tokyo's leafy Yanaka area, for example, which avoided major damage during World War II and retains generational storefronts and wooden houses with tiled roofs. And that's kind of the point. The buildings look great, but you don't go in them. You don't explore them. Um, a lot of the times these old neighborhoods, you could wander around them for hours and see a nice little temple, go into a noodle shop, uh, pick up something along the way that you needed for your home. Uh, a lot of online shopping is, is taking over that, though. And a lot of these older places, the buildings are getting old and the people are getting old and young people don't necessarily want to run a toothbrush shop anymore. So it's kind of all going by the wayside, but the buildings are great to look at, but you don't go into them. Whereas these old neighborhoods uh, would, if you're a walker, you would just, you could end up going around them for hours and hours, for years and years, and understand 
a, a very rich, complex network of, of people living in a community. But with these new buildings, actually, what's kind of interesting, I once interviewed somebody who was a municipal worker that was responsible for approving. She was like a part of a team for approving large scale development projects in the Shinjuku district. And she told me that um, frequently there's a lot of public space that is developed on. So oftentimes what happens now is that these new major buildings will have a giant lobby. Like the, the lobby is two or three floors. There's not a second floor. There's not a third floor. It's just a giant open space with like some plants and some benches and a meeting zone and like a key cards for office workers to get in and out and maybe an elevator or something like that. Um, and that's because it's public space, but those three first three floors is just a big empty room. So even if you go in there and you're allowed to go in there, even if you're not an office worker, have no business there, you're not going to really, can, there's nothing to do. You might get a coffee at a busy coffee shop filled with office workers coming and going, but it's not really the same thing as I was mentioning before, that the back streets, the winding back streets, a noodle shop, a shrine, something to think about. So in a way, there's the, the double-edged sword here where, Yes, the buildings look great. They're not these postmodern monstrosities, but at the same time, it, it is like a it's a manicured um, experience, purposefully built for high rollers, um, money makers, and the future elites. It's a completely different reality, and that's what the government and the um, Tokyo elites have decided for the next hundred years. We'll see if they can cash in. We'll see if they can cash in. They might be able to. I always wonder though, like. Who goes to the seventh floor of a giant shopping building to, to get a t-shirt? It's just, who, is there enough people that do that? Are there to get a $300 t-shirt? Is that really something that people do with their lives? I don't know. I've always been the kind of guy that's just like, hey, let's go down this alleyway, see if we can get some noodles and maybe throw some money at a shrine or something like that. I don't know. It is what it is. And that's the economy for today or the Japan situation. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements. All right, so that's Japan Society 5.0, a video and kind of a song, a jingle made by the Japanese government to promote their Japan Society 5.0 initiative, which is an all-encompassing umbrella for um, drones, networks, wireless technology, facial recognition, all of that stuff. And the idea is to kind of create a human-censored digital society. And the government's trying very hard to do this, but they're so old and so involved in their own paperwork 
it, it's like they throw something digital and it comes back to them in the form of paperwork every single time, usually with a whole bunch of errors along the way because everybody doesn't, nobody really knows what they're doing, especially with this administration that we are in right now. They're supposed to be like these tech savvy dudes, but really they, they're just on their phones on Twitter. So it's like, hey, I'm a tech savvy guy. Look at me. I'm on Twitter. Well, Twitter is designed to be the easiest thing in the world to use. I mean, you're not programming anything. You're not in the code. You're not, in the, you're not on GitHub making your own version of Twitter to see if you can compete with it or just out of curiosity. I spent five years at a telecommunications company teaching AI, an AI class to engineers. And these engineers, they're like, not only do they spend their time at work doing engineering, their hobbies are engineering. I'd be like, what'd you do on the weekend? And they'd be like, I took a MacBook apart and I, I took the Mac shell and I put a PC into the Mac shell. So when you turn on the Mac and you think you're going to get an Apple logo, it's a Windows logo. <laughs> There's like the funniest thing in the world is... Love that dude. That dude was hilarious, but that's what he did in his spare time. <laughs> but he wasn't like some administer going, it's time for my spare time. I think I'll go on Twitter because I'm tech savvy. And so um, case in point is for today. And, and a lot of this stuff with, with AI and cloud technology, when it works, it works. And when it's designed by engineers, it tend to, tends to work very well. Facial recognition locks, for example. And when it's done well uh, with a couple of um, like a heat camera, a motion camera um, and, a, and a hash for your security code so that your face isn't displayed to people so that they can copy your name and address, it tends to work very well. But when you get the government involved with their initiatives, it turns to shit so quickly. And that's no exception for today. And today we're going to take a look down this alley of shit, actually. So join me, won't you? Come with me, MatthewPandBigelow.com, as we venture through an alley of shit that the government wants to introduce to us to make our lives better for the digital future. Let's go. UN Forum on Internet Governance Begins in Kyoto. Focus on AI. Um, which this is from Kyoto News via japantoday.com. A UN forum on public policy issues regarding the internet began in Kyoto on Sunday with focus on artificial intelligence and measures against disinformation. Yeah, they really don't like us having disinformation, do they? Imagine that. Ivermectin is disinformation. No, it's not. Now you can use it. All that stuff. These are monsters. These are monsters. We need these are monsters. These are monsters. The results of the discussions at the Internet Governance Forum scheduled through Thursday will be utilized for the Hiroshima AI process in which the group of seven industrialized nations will establish rules on AI-related topics. Now, I remember covering the Hiroshima AI process on this podcast. A lot of people are coming and going, and so what happened was, and I have actually a bit of a correction to establish on this case. Um, lo and behold, I'm not exactly super Mr. Super right all the time. Um, this involves the World Economic Forum on a big level, actually, and especially the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, or the Fourth Industrial Revolution Center of Japan, um, which was established, Fourth Industrial Revolution, mentioned in that Society 5.0 jingle is a Klaus Schwab terminology. He has a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. And there's a center called The Fourth Industrial Revolution in, in Tokyo that's on the World Economic Forum website. And um, in 2019, when the government, like Abe, mentioned some things on AI, 
uh, for regulation, the fourth industrial center, uh, fourth industrial revolution center in Japan, then refines those ideas. And then at the Hiroshima AI process um, meeting uh, just recently at the G7 May, uh, summit in, uh, where was it? Mm. Recently in, I guess in Hiroshima, sorry. Um, the World Economic Forum's Japan Fourth Industrial Revolution introduced, reintroduced refined topics to Taro Kono, um, the digital minister for um, Japan. And so you have like this idea of this public-private partnership and they basically just like spitball loads of cum back and forth between each other until they swallow the cum and then that makes them believe that they've reached a decision that they can then shit on all over all of us. So basically what happens is these public-private partnerships uh, swap each other's cum and then shit the cum all over all of us and then we live with this shit cum that's kind of could be the title of the show, Living with Shitcom. Um, and that's, that's my summary. Digital Minister Taro Kono attended as a panelist for a discussion called Understanding, quote, Data Free Flow with Trust, or DFFT, where he emphasized the need for more nations to join the dialogue. About 6,000 people from the government, business, and education facilities are expected to attend over 3,000 scheduled talks about cybercrime. But the main thing here is that I'm talking about is the DFFT. Now, I mentioned that we're going down this river of shit, and that's why it's hard to deal with. Like the explanation that I just gave with all these organizations that don't really do anything or say anything, but they're always integrating with each other and giving each other vocabulary then to deal with and refine. DFFT is that thing. And today we're going to look at that, understanding data free flow with trust. I thought that this was initiated by the World Economic Forum's Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution Japan, but it was not. It was actually introduced in 2019 by Shinzo Abe at a rare Davos conference that he attended. I mean, it was rare for Abe to attend it. So um, now, if you think that I am having problems explaining this, I am. But this is part of what they want to do is they want to... They want to decide what, what data gets shared across borders. And the trust means they decide when information is trusted and not trusted. We don't often hear about DFFT, but it's frequently mentioned again and again and again. And I wonder why Shinzo Abe even brought it up, because it's not as though, um, like, j- the Japanese internet is pretty segregated. There's not a lot of uh, people, non native Japanese speakers that access Japanese internet and do Japanese internet. Uh, Japanese internet is like very, very Japanese. And if, unless you want to be anonymous and writing very short articles a few thousand times a day, you're not really in the Japanese internet. So I wonder why Abo, Abe Habo, uh, who was murdered, I think for more nefarious causes now after thinking about things for a while, but that's another conversation. I wonder why he even brought up this thing, but it just kind of goes to show that there's this um, incestuous relationship between these public and private partnerships. And when they say that, they just mean the government that makes ideas and then sort of shares these ideas with the World Economic Forum or NGOs that then develop the ideas. And then the next time they meet, 
the NGOs or the World Economic Forum groups pass these refined ideas back into the government. And that's what I mean by the cum swap. That's the cum swap. And eventually they swallow it and they, they shit cum on all of us. But as you can see, I don't like these ideas because I don't see how they can go anywhere. Have you ever been in a, in a circular conversation for years and years and years and years? That's what this is. And it's, it's insane. But I did manage to find somebody who really likes the idea of data free flow with trust. And even he can't really explain it. Again, I warned you we're going down the river of shit. But this is the idea of what Japan Society 5.0 is governing us as. These are the leaders that are telling us how we should be experiencing technology in the future. And these are the people that are deciding how we are able to trust this technology in the future. Because, I mean, they're super tech savvy. They're on Twitter. We should be listening to them all the time and only them. And if you listen to anybody else, it's data non-flow with non-trust. You see how that can go the other way very quickly? Would you, if you're the data free flow with trust, well, you're just going to be soaring all over the internet and all your articles are going to be shared and you're going to be lauded by the uh, narrative lovers. But if you're part of the data non-flow with non-trust, you're going to be isolated in a tiny, 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 tiny little section of the internet and you're going to be screaming at a bunch of ones and zeros that are designed to allow you to scream but then are designed to block that scream from reaching anyone else, anywhere else in the world. Um, but let's move on to this guy who just loves the idea of data free flow with trust. And listen to this guy who knows all about it and loves it. Listen to how, how eloquently and how easy he describes it, where you will listen to this guy. On the other end of this explanation, you will be enlightened and you'll also just know the practical applications of what DFFT really means. Data-free flow of trust is a concept that former Japanese Prime Minister Abe proposed in the G20 in order to put data governance on the global agenda in an effort to drive discussions around the rules, norms and values around data, as at the moment there are few uh, rules or forums focused on this issue in a pragmatic way. Discussions of DFFT cover data privacy and data protection, along with security and intellectual property protection, among other issues. Ultimately, across these issues, the general goal is to work towards similar and compatible approaches as a way to set sort of global norms. And while DFFT started at the G20, it has shifted to the G7, given China and Russia's membership of the G20, and the fact that they just take fundamentally different approaches to data governance. And so the challenge is now for the G7 to bring DFFT to life. Uh, most recently in Japan, uh, G7 countries agreed to establish a permanent secretariat, which will hopefully help it uh, focus discussions and bring it to life through pragmatic agreements and forms of cooperation. This isn't a parody. A lot more account. still needs to be done to truly make uh, DFFTs a successful initiative for global data governance. Wow. Now I understand. I wish I could have explained it just like him. Pragmatic measures. <laughs> So that's DFFT. And you have these people that are put into charge, like we're going to govern AI and we're going to do it because of chat GPT and DFFT. And like, come on, guys, no one really actually believes you. Um, a couple of things on DFFT for today. This comes to us from the World Economic Forum, just to back up what I was saying. It's got under the headline data governance. Um 
The Japan Center hosted a data policy dialogue in November 2018 advocating that data governance should be positioned as the most important issue of the fourth industrial revolution. At the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos in January 2019, Japan, Abe, presented data free flow with trust as a framework for promoting data distribution. In June of the same year, at the G20 Osaka Summit hosted by Japan, the Osaka Track was launched, marking the birth of the first international initiative on data distribution. Currently, we are studying and implementing data governance based on three pillars. One, cross-border data flows. Two, the Data for Common Purpose Initiative, or DCPI. And three, redesigning trust by updating regulations and rules, governance innovation. Leaders at the forum's annual meeting in January 2020 provided multi-stakeholder, again, stakeholder capitalism is another book written by Klaus Schwab, inputs to the Osaka track and cross-data data flows, building trust in data flows. Um, it goes on from there. It also mentions um, the equitable and trusted use of data. So again, the use of equity, uh, which just means we decide what's fair and then we take everything that's fair and we'll say you're not fair and omit you from anything that's going to be happening in this social credit world. It's, it's like the stepping stones for an international credit rating score based on your online activity. And if you're a good little boy, maybe your tweet will get more views. That's basically it. And everybody's so in love with their follower counts, not everyone, but so many, they'll go along with it, just like they went along with the COVID protocols, just like how they went along with um, uh, hating uh, Putin because of the Ukraine operation, and probably now just like how they're going to love um, they're going to blame all of the inflation on anything but their own political choices in life uh, because they've been told that it's okay. The, the screen has demanded their um, submission, and in return, they will get government-sanctioned approval. And that's kind of what this is all about, and that's Japan Society 5.0. And then if you are very, very lucky, you'll be able to use your face as payment for when a drone drops down uh, a packet of two-ply, uh, 12 rolls of toilet paper outside your house. The the grace and, and, and the sophistication with which we're moving into this new world is uh, probably not as, as, as utopian as is envisioned. It's more like um, uh, permissioned, uh, permission, permissionopia. Everything you get, you're getting permission to do so by some sort of... Uh, neural network in the cloud that understands your your rating and, and the levels at which you can operate in society. Heaven forbid you go down to the store to buy some inferior pack of toilet paper. <laughs> That's what they want, though. That's what they want. That's definitely what they want. Um, so I'm going to be posting all that to MatthewPMBigelow.com. Um, there's a couple of other things for Society 5.0. We'll just mention them briefly here. The big AI and robotics concept that has attracted both Walmart and SoftBank. This is, of course, um, using warehouses as a service. Uh, another, A lot of these robots now that are like the Amazon robots and warehouses, it's very easy to set up and take down and expand. I've been monitoring these robotic companies for a long time. You don't need a lot of human involvement in them. And if you have a good uh, digital twin system and you know what items are in which boxes in the cloud, 
the robots can easily manage such systems. So you start out with eight robots and then your your company gets a bit busier with some orders. You expand it to 12 or 16 and then it's just simple shelving units that you put up and take down or even the company that owns the, the warehousing as a service option just builds it up inside their own warehouse space for you. So as a, as a medium or small size company, you don't need to have to invest millions of dollars in this technology to gain access to it. It's getting at that point where a lot of the robots from 10 years ago uh, might be good enough for a small company to use or, or even a lot of that uh, cloud technology or wireless technology. If you're just selling like a few hundred different items, you don't really need um, a giant warehouse like Amazon with its cloud computing and digital twin uh, cutting edge technology to manage your, 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 your widgets and, and whatnot. So there's that as well. And finally, Chinese startups, um, robo-waiters, ready to take orders around the world. And these are those new um, robots that wheel around the restaurants and bring you your food or act as a tray where you can put your dirty dishes on it. We'll take it away. I think these can be a massive security risk, <laughs> especially if they're made in China. What if there's like a secret AI camera that reads faces, a secret AI facial recognition camera? It'll be able to understand like the average age or the average, um, you can get some real good consumer data on that. But also these um, robots like the Roomba scans the inside of your house and sends that data off to a Roomba company server somewhere who then sells that to advertising companies who might understand that there's enough room in your apartment for a new fridge or a new cabinet. Then they can deliver targeted advertisements to you based on the space available in your house. But with all of this um, restaurant space and all that, or even like views from the windows, they might be able to kind of launch a very passive intelligence gathering operation by having thousands of robots around the world constantly scanning the environs of of these um, uh, restaurants on the second, third, or even 20 or 30th floors of restaurants and uh, just be continuously gathering, collecting, and scanning information for customer profiles, um, space in the restaurants, and as well as like maybe they're looking at skylines or helicopter paths or all sorts of stuff that you can see from a window. Who knows what those things are going to be looking? It looks like a giant, massive security threat. But the robots are very cute, and they go, thank you for taking my food. You know, oh, you're welcome. Oh, here's your food. Here's your food. Meanwhile, it's just a giant spy collecting data on everything. And that's Japan Society 5.0 for today. What did you think about the DFFT, the Data Free Flow with Trust? I hate it. I can't stand it. But these are like, it's it's ongoing. It's very important because... These are like the highest level international meetings, and these are what they're. This is the. These are the topics that they're talking about. But these people that are talking about them have no idea what they're talking about. But they're just going to shit come at all on the rest of us at some point down the road. We're going to have to deal with this, and uh, it's probably going to be really annoying, super dumb, and it's going to bog us down in a bunch of useless data processing online. I'll take all the paperwork and just put it onto a form online and you'll just write down your address a billion times in order to understand if you qualify for some a travel coupon on a website that you want to go to in Guma somewhere because there's a waterfall nearby.
The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. <clears throat> the fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example... Why not go over to MatthewPMBigelow.com? Check it out. We got the show notes, links, photos, and more. If you're interested, you can also make a donation at via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Japan WUT. That's paypal.me forward slash Japan WUT. Japan what? Or you can use one of these new podcasting 2.0 apps. What's that? Well, Adam Curry and the rest of them at the Podcast Index uh, have been busy making protocols that divert podcasters away from the big traps of big tech. That is, massive promises, zero return, and ultimately, precarious and random censorship. Uh, and additionally, with these podcasting 2.0 apps, such as Podverse, CurioCaster, uh, PodFans, Fountain, and others, uh, it allows the listener to donate micropayments of Bitcoin called Satoshis directly from a GetAlby wallet to the podcaster, like me. So, um, if you're interested in decentralization, if you're interested in averting big tech's ever-growing tentacles into everything, podcasting 2.0 is something you should check out. Um, there's a lot going on in the podcasting 2.0 space so that it gives people access to the technology without having to get drowned in the big waves of big tech. Check it out. MatthewPMBigelow.com. MatthewPMBigelow.com. PayPal.me forward slash Japan W U T. Die for the war, everybody moves. Die for the good, for the good. Die for the war, die for the war. Um, I'm going to hammer on this topic again and going back to the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about Israel and Palestine and that whole thing that's over and over and over again. Um, the idea is that in certain uh, countries across the world, like Canada or the United States or certain parts of um, Europe as well, you get enough of a population of um, fundamentalists and you essentially are inviting that fundamentalism in to the country at a certain level. When times are good, there's usually no problem. I mean, okay, the, uh, the doctor is an Indian, the restaurant guy is somebody from an Arab country, and then you you drive home and then, I don't know, you talk to your neighbor and he's from uh, Pakistan or something like that. Okay, great. Who cares? But if, if, if there's a certain degree of fundamentalism in, in, inside of that population as a whole, or those populations as a whole, I'm not going to lump them all together, well, then when times are bad, you don't know what's going to happen. Now, I don't foresee some sort of Palestinian revolution happening in um, Japan, although for a while there, there was quite of a contingent of mass Palestinian support in Japan. Um, 
But that was, I think that was something to do with like the boomer generation. I don't really know about it. I just know that when I saw massive Palestinian support, it was with like really old people. Kind of like going into a church. <clears throat> oh, look at all these people in this church. And it was like, oh, these are all old people. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, same thing with like uh, Jewish populations in Japan, not really a thing. But when you get to the sleeper cell aspect of it, and I'm going to say this again, um, Japan is home to a lot of North Koreans. There's about 30,000 of them last time I checked. And if um, things go weird in Taiwan um, with Taipei and Beijing and China, then with the recent alliance between North Korea, China, and Russia, and then Iran, and then that's Hezbollah, and then that's Hamas, and then that gets into Israel. It connects it all together in a kind of, you know, patchy way, but it's still there. But what could happen is um, they could share their um, sleeper cell operations manuals with each other. So what's going on right now with um, Palestine and, uh, and Israel, the current attack where you saw rockets and paratroopers, hang glider types, fixed wing small aircraft, um, and uh, a lot of the weaponry that America has abandoned in the Middle East and also going into Ukraine right now. You basically have two massive corrupt systems that have been equipped with billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of weaponry. And I'm not saying that the Taliban are going to learn how to fly um, advanced helicopters, and they don't know how to maintain it, but they might know how to sell that helicopter for a whole bunch of machine guns, for example. Maybe they know that. Who doesn't? Hey, we might not get the full value on this on this helicopter for machine guns, but we're going to get a shit ton of machine guns for it. Maybe they're doing that, or maybe they're just giving it to their allies to reverse engineer it or study the parts, or you know, if China's making a lot of those parts and they understand which ones are in high demand, which ones are in low demand. They could interfere with the supply chain networks and do all that. So there's all sorts of things that could be happening right now. And then it all comes back to Japan because Japan is a major um, uh, ally to America and we're home to a lot of um, military bases, Navy bases, Air Force bases and all that throughout the country. But when it comes to sharing the information from the sleeper cells with Hezbollah and Hamas and uh, with the, with under guidance from Iran, it seems at this point, well, they could share that data back to China and Russia to conduct operations inside of Japan with Japan's North Korean population. The war in Taiwan is supposed to kick off in 2026 and 2027, and that would give China and um, Russia and North Korea a lot of time to prep up the sleeper cell population that could or could not be in Japan, um, but it would give them enough reason to maybe target or spend some some serious coin on, um, on radicalizing the existing uh, North Korean population in Japan to, to kick some shit off. So all I'm saying is that with all of the talk of Japan being used as a launch pad into the Taiwan Strait for um, allied services or or American services, I'm from like I studied a lot of World War II, so I think like in terms of allies and stuff like that, I shouldn't. I should say American-led coalition or something like that. Um. And then using the Philippines as like a as a southern invasion point into Taiwan. Well, if if the people that are considering all of these options 
in Japan are not also considering the possible internal issues with sleeper cells, then you're basically the same as the rave party that was happening in Israel right next to Gaza, where you just have a whole bunch of people high out of their minds, dancing until the early mornings, right next to a wall, where on the other side of that wall, there's millions of people that want you out of there. And you're thinking, I hate guns, I love peace, let's have a rave of love next to the the wall of hate. It's like Trump, it's got to go. And then, boom, uh, you get shot in the face. That could easily just as happen in Japan as well. I'm not saying that we need a Gaza Strip for the, the North Koreans here. I'm not saying that at all. If there's like, I'm not getting involved actually in that type of discussion. I mean, they know what they're doing, I'm assuming. I'm not coming here with some sort of, hey, Japan, you know what you need to do with these North, or hey, North Koreans, you know what you need to do with these Japanese people around? No, I'm not saying that at all. But if you're not aware of the potential segment within a population that could be radicalized and screw up your operations when shit hits the fan, then it's on you or you'll be accused of um, not being unprepared, but allowing it to happen, which is another thing that's happening with Israel right now. Many people are saying, of course Israel knew it was happening. This is just like 9-11 where Bush wanted to seize more power and Jews want to seize more power and they're willing to sack. Like it spins off into crazy land pretty quickly and it could be true. I'm not saying it ain't. But if, you're, um, if you don't want to go down that road, then you kind of need to prepare for it in advance. So all I'm saying is, is I hope that the North Korean population in Japan continues to exist in its peacefulness relatively and that um, uh, they don't get radicalized. But if they do, then there should be some sort of contingency going on right now as war heats up around the world without violating the rights of any North Koreans in Japan. I have to say this very carefully, by the way. Otherwise, you get like accused of a bunch of crazy stuff, and I don't want people following me around. I get enough crazy stuff from people on the internet sometimes just by mentioning something offhand, and it goes down a crazy rabbit hole. But I consider this to be important, and it needs to be considered, and I don't see anybody else talking about it. So think about that for a minute, okay? Would ya? And, uh, Anything else in the war? We'll just read some um, headlines here. Japan and eight ASEAN nations to bolster cybersecurity collaboration. Japanese lawmakers to visit Taiwan for National Day celebrations. Uh, China is becoming a no-go zone for executives. That's true. Big business state-owned enterprises setting up army-linked militias in China. Uh, Taiwan's blockade cost could be felt wider than COVID, U.S. official. Right? That, that COVID has been fucking marched forward, man. That line in the sand exists. And there's a lot of people that will stay on that one line, man. They will not cross the line. They will do whatever they're told. And now we know that. Repairing U.S. ships in Japan, very important. De very important, Defense Chief Kihara says. And, you know, it does make sense. It's a good business opportunity, and it helps bolster security locally, but also be prepared for um, those to be targets as well. Hmm? And uh, the last one we'll focus on for war today is China's economic ills infecting the rest of Asia. 
China has this idea called unrestricted warfare, which means anything can be used in war. One idea right now is fentanyl. Chinese kind of produce the basic ingredients for fentanyl, ship it to the uh, Mexican cartels, the American cartel, the American, well, they're kind of American in Arizona right now, but the Mexican cartels then ship all that into America. And now you have a huge amount of Americans that can't really do much at all because they're hooked on fentanyl. Not a lot, but that affects their families. It affects the social system and taxes and da-da-da-da-da. It goes on. There's a huge knock-on effect. That is an idea of unrestricted warfare. And when the ever Evergrande um, economic collapse was happening with all of this uh, Chinese real estate built up and built up, Chinese people invest in it and never gets finished. Nobody ever moves in, but it's considered like a safe investment because the value goes up. Well, the Communist Party of, of China might be using this like as a as a two-pronged attack on its own people to prevent them from gaining too much money or influence or climbing the upper into the upper echelons of society outside of the CCP track or tech tracks. That's one idea. And the other idea is that if there's a lot of investment coming into China that is then being used for these um, fake cities to be developed, once that those uh, fake cities um, go up in flames or they're just destroyed or they're written off, these massive evaluations that have a huge amount of foreign investment into them, well, the, the backlash then gets sent out to the rest of the world. And you got to remember, like, the CCP sacrificed 65 million people pretty much um, during the Great Leap Forward just as an experiment. And I'm not saying they all have a death wish, but there's this idea where maybe they don't care that much if a whole bunch of Chinese people by the tens and tens of millions suffer an economic hit in order for the CCP to make a greater hit uh, across their um, local competitors, like in even Laos or Singapore, Malaysia, it goes back into America, they might be willing to kind of sink a segment of their economy just to see the waves of destruction kind of go out and infect the rest of the society or economies around them. And a lot of those economies are facing towards America. And while China is trying to claim a lot of the South China Sea as its own, a lot of the Belt and Road Initiative that China is trying to mm, develop extends east, like towards Europe, through Pakistan, around um, India, subverting, like diverting India and all these things. So they might be willing to kind of like in their grand economic goals of kind of taking over like a wider and wider part of um, Asia and establishing like a land-based, uh, you know, transcontinental um, uh, operation there, transcontinental meaning Asia to Europe and then maybe even into the Middle East and then down into Africa, they might be willing to take all of this um, real estate uh destruction as a form of unrestricted warfare and unleash it onto the West and onto the Western allies just as a way to screw with everybody. And then while everybody's dealing with the mess, including their own people, the CCP is not going to be harmed by it too much. They're going to continue their path of developing through Tibet, through Kyrgyzstan, through Kazakhstan, through the Uyghurs, all of that stuff, and then into the Middle East and into Africa 
and into Pakistan. That's where all the populations are. That's where they see the future growth opportunities. That's where they can expand their Huawei 5G networks and everything like that. They're not looking to expand 5G Huawei networks into Thai, into Thailand as much or into um, regions that are heavily reliant on American or European technology. But even those European and technology companies are highly reliant on China right now. So maybe China even thinks that it's a done deal and that the real regions of growth are where there are no other competitions, such as in Africa or wide swaths of um, the Middle East and stuff like that, where the Middle East might just say, hey, China's pretty good at it set up shop here we don't care if you monitor our citizens we don't really care about that stuff over here so this form of unrestricted warfare might be like well a lot of people might go hey well these buildings are filled with no people now china's economy is going down in flames well maybe the part of china's economy that's going down in flames is the largely the part of the chinese economy that's tied to the western economy and the chinese communist party might be willing to just sacrifice the entire thing to like just they're willing to cut off the nose to spite the face but they're cutting off their nose to spite the face of the developed world as it's like to be called or the uh, the Asian affiliated American nations and then onto America's shores itself to push back America economically and preventing it from extending it further into Asia. So it's kind of establishing like um, a scorched earth policy economically where um, even as America tries to rebuild these supply chains and all that, China is just going to keep expanding into population um, growth areas and uh, capturing that with their new technology, their 5G networks and their wireless payment systems that then will probably use the digital yuan at some point and replace the American dollar. So it's economics, it's uh, real estate, it's land, it's technology, it's cyber. That's unrestricted warfare for the Chinese Communist Party. And I believe we're seeing it right now. And the example of that is the fall of the Evergrande situation um, and their economic ills are economic ills, but they're economic ills that are specifically tied to American affiliated um, economic investments being done purposefully to, to harm their arrival systems. Whew. And I think is that all we got time for today? I think that's all the time we got for today. That was kind of interesting, wasn't it? Interesting analysis. Not sure if you find it anywhere else. I think we got time for one more, according to those sirens behind me. Um, U.S. citizen arrested south of Yokohama for over theft of unlocked city vehicle. You know what that means. Super Gadget of the Week. Super Gadget. Best G-O-T-W. U.S. citizen arrested south of Yokohama over theft of unlocked city vehicle on October 9th, 2023. A U.S. citizen was arrested on suspicion of larceny after a city-owned vehicle was stolen. Jackie Vu, 24, was taken into custody on the spot by officers from the Kanagawa Prefectural's police Tora Police Station. The unemployed man of no known address stands accused of stealing an official vehicle with an estimated market value of $3,350 from a Yokosuka parking lot between the mid-morning of October 6th and the afternoon of October 7th. According to sources close to the investigation, Wu is a former serviceman from the United States and has admitted to the allegations. The worker reportedly left the car unlocked with the key inside so that other city workers would be able to drive right away. 
In response to the incident, a city official said it was thought that the only other city workers would use the vehicle. Our supervision was poor. The city apparently intends to change the way it manages the vehicle. High Trust Society going down. (laughs) That's too bad. But there we go. That guy is the stupid gaijin of the week. Um, Having a high trust society is very rare. Don't come to Japan and ruin it for the rest of us. Of course, we all make mistakes sometimes, but stealing a car ain't one of them. And stealing an official car for a city makes you the stupid gaijin of the week. Stupid gaijin of the week. And thank you for listening to today's show. This has been the Japan What Podcast, episode 111. Uh, You can go to MatthewPMBigelow.com to review the show notes, get some photos, some donations, ideas, and more. Until next time, everybody, thank you for tuning in from the Toshi Hisacho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan, the armpit of Asia. It is me, MatthewPMBigelow.com. Until next time, everybody. Ja, mata, nee.